0: I would say the best advice I can give is make product thinking part of the DNA of your organization. Make everyone realize that over-engineering is like a path to failure in early ventures. It's proving out your capability in uh, live, active usage-driven environments that actually brings your product to life for the near-term and the mid-term. And if there's no near-term and mid-term, there is no long-term. So having that thinking is pretty critical.
1: This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, we're gonna to talk a little bit about climate sustainability, and I'm joined by Gopal Perez, who is a CTO and the head of product at SUS Global. He is also the co-founder of SUS Global. So welcome, Gopal.
0: Thanks, Melissa. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, so can you tell us a little bit about your career so far, how'd you get into climate sustainability and what made you want to start this company?
0: Absolutely. So I'm a electrical engineer turned geodata scientist. I spent the early years of my career working on multimedia products, very far away from climate, both figuratively as well as literally. And over the course of the last eight years, I started transitioning more into learning about large-scale spatio-temporal data sets and applying climate-related and environmental data transformation techniques on large-scale data sets using machine learning and computer vision, and through a serendipitous sequence of events, ended up leading insights and analytics products at Planet Labs that operates the world's largest constellation of Earth observation satellites that exists. And through that journey over the course of three years, from 2017 to 2020, we shipped series of products around analytics and insights that were looking at the treasure trove of earth observation sensing from satellite data into refined clean analytical inputs into workflows that deal with environmental decision making as well as defense and intelligence decision making and mapping and navigation workflows and i learned in that process of shipping the product lines of planet analytics and some other derivatives I got more interested in climate because that's one of the bigger pieces of the environment that affects all of our lives and saw so those you know, three distinct communities the community of earth observation that's looking at observational sensing and data products that are very specific to the historic and cataloged event-driven information around climate and then the community of climate modeling which is largely in the scientific atmospheric as well as oceanographic Modeling environment in the space of Earth system sciences, and they look at more forward-looking projections around what happens in across the world in terms of different warming scenarios across different socioeconomic pathways, and then uh, the emergent financial ecosystem that is looking at ESG and sustainable financial instruments, and saw a void and the absence of uh, of bridges connecting those three communities. And to a great extent, that's what's evolved into the product line we are developing at SAS. So at SUS Global, our mission is to develop data-driven products that enable every business decision to be climate informed so that humanity can thrive in a changing planet. So that's kind of the inspiration with which we started. And today we've stood up a product line around that. So it's been long a journey into the product landscape of climate data products.
1: What types of companies would be buying this climate data and how might they be using it?
0: Yeah, so today we are seeing a growing number of new businesses as well as uh, financial institutions interested in uh, climate data, primarily because of recommended disclosure frameworks that quickly becoming close to standard, even though not mandated just yet, that's coming. And secondly, there's an increasing desire across The institutional investors, as well as retail investors, to invest in a climate conscious way because that's on top of mind across the world, be it a heat wave prone area like India or be it the financial markets in the US or Europe. So, you're just seeing a lot of emergent awareness. Specifically, we are selling into ESG advisory businesses that are interested in having the best validated climate related data sets on physical risk exposure. We are also seeing an emerging market in financial institutions, insurance, banking, and asset management.
1: Okay, so in the financial or the insurance companies, let's say you're like a mid-level manager, what types of questions are you asking about climate and how are they using it in their everyday decisions?
0: So primarily you are looking as a portfolio manager, are looking at building either a long-shot hedge strategy or uh, you're looking at a long-term holding of financial instruments that have direct correlation to physical, tangible assets on the ground. There is a multitude of different physical climate risks that those assets have exposure to. And they can have a direct impact to the bottom line of those financial instruments that the asset manager's holding. What they're asking is, I hold these assets on my books. I hold these assets over a longer period of time. What is the extent of the exposure? What is the risk? What's the level of severity? And how vulnerable am I as a holder of these assets for the long-term to climate-related risk? Diversification is on top of their mind. And they think about climate diversification as another dimension of factor risk that they consider.
1: Okay, so like if I am a portfolio manager for home insurance, let's say. And I've got a ton of homes sitting on the beach in an area where you know the water is rising and it might not be on the beach anymore. It might be in the water in a couple of years. Those are the types of things I want to pull and look at to make sure that I'm not over or overexposed in certain assets in that area.
0: That's right. So if you were to look at the gamut of climate-induced physical risk, it goes across acute risks like wildfires inland floods, tropical cyclones, and coastal floods, and chronic hazards like heat waves, sea level rise and water stress or drought. And you know, different businesses have different exposure to each of these. If you're like a refinery or metal mining or bottling plant, you have extreme dependence on water availability and water supply. If you're agricultural commodities oriented player, you are relying on water supply. So the chronic hazards have a lot of impact on your operational costs, as well as uh, your operational throughput and long-term value. If you were looking at real estate, be it the example you cited, or uh, your investment into a REIT or a REOC, or a pool of mortgage-backed securities, all of them have exposure to the acute risks Wildfires, floods, and cyclones that directly impact the valley in terms of the either the yield or the direct valuation of the properties over the course of time. So that's where there's a direct correlation between the holding, the assets on the ground, and physical risk data.
1: So, what made you want to solve this problem specifically? How do you kind of observe it in your you know your career and your passing and decide that's what I want to get into?
0: So, you know, there's this obvious proverbial thinking around, you know, the product manager as the one who's like looking at the mirror and making decisions on his or her of their own. But there's a version of that, not to make that the best case example, but there's a version of that that's true with me. So I live in San Francisco and over the last 10 years, we've seen an increasing incidence of extreme wildfire events happening within the 300 kilometer radius of the city. In 2020, we saw the largest incidence of wildfires recorded in the Pacific Northwest in recorded history. So we're not looking at just one or two years, but if you look at recorded history, in 2020, you saw the the largest incidence. And then my original home city in India is located in the state of Kerala. And we saw two one-in-100-year floods at that level of severity happen over three years. And that's statistically not common. And I felt like there is a unique opportunity to use the emergence of Earth observation capabilities, space payloads in space that have been launched over the last 10 years that are beaming data downstream to ground stations to be bundled with climate-related data towards providing more refined insights around exposure over the near term, which would be one to 10 years and over the long term would be which would be all the way up to 30 years and that information can enable the allocation of capital across the world be it real estate or be it in commodities or be it in new sustainable financial instruments in a climate conscious way and i saw less of that happening five years ago i'm seeing more of that happen right now but five years ago that was less and i saw the opportunity to be a part of that revolution be part of creating foundational products that are used across the emergent climate economy, where every decision is made in a climate informed manner.
1: Great. So when you were thinking about solving this problem, right? you're you're building a data product, I've heard a lot of people ask questions about how do you MVP a data product, right? You have to go out get out all of this climate data, all these sources. What did you do to test it? and see how your customers reacted to it.
0: Great question. And I feel like you know some of this was experience that I picked up when I was at Planet Labs. So I was hired into Planet by the CTO of Planet Labs in 2017, primarily because they had just this problem. They had like a treasure trove of data that they were sitting on, but there were many communities that lacked the geospatial expertise to work on dense, semi-structured spatial data that is in the terabyte scale. So while we were building on the capability of transforming that into a simplified time series of change or computer vision feature driven uh, features as a service, which you're identifying specific objects in a region of interest over the course of time and tracking their presence or absence, we kind of needed to go through that journey. So the first step there that we followed was really focusing on MVPs and identifying before you actually bake uh, the cake, what are the ingredients that are most desirable to the folks who are going to consume the cake? And I think the first step there is you need to build out your APIs and your full web stack till you can prove out the value proposition of the data. So start with that, start with the outcome rather than the outputs, and work backwards from there. And you can create mockups of the outcomes and test that with an early set of uh, gated customers who can provide you with t- trustable feedback.
1: When you're doing the mockups too, for things like APIs, right? They're, they don't have as many, they're not an interface, right? Like they're not like a clickable prototype that you can go through. What types of things are telling you that, yes, I'm getting this right, or I'm reducing my risk that I might fail when I'm actually trying to develop that API?
0: I would say you can still go through with outcomes so if you were to think about apis as like the foundation towards thin clients that have visual components you can start in two points and i'll start with the visual element first so you could mock up visual elements which have in the case of spatial data products which have mapping interfaces which have temporal interfaces and showcase what the outcomes can look like for someone who's making decisions with the data you're serving. Depending on what choices you make and what you see as dominant signals of interest, you can then work backwards to the API endpoints and your data model. So I would say that customer-facing view that drives decision-making on the data and the model structure is often very powerful it's a pattern that i've used a fair bit in terms of scoping and defining api products in the past the second one you can do is work with a few data scientists or developers who would be direct users of the api because regular consumers are in or retail users or analysts are often not the right users for an api it's normally a developer so working with developers or proofing the mvp of an api just in terms of structure and in terms of the query parameters and in terms of the data model can go a long way in terms of building your own internal confidence that your mvp is the right one to invest engineering effort into
1: when we're looking at other factors too like besides just apis when we're building data products a lot of it is also the quality of the data if you're looking at one of the things for the user is that like it must be the highest quality data how do you like test that early on to make sure that they like understand that it's high quality, they get that, even if it's just like a mock-up or an experiment?
0: You know, one approach, I'm sure there are many approaches. The approach that I've, I've used to Fairbed is really sandbox the data capability into an area that that one customer, that cohort of customers really cares about and wants to make a decision with, and then provide them that data in the simplest lowest level of effort way so they can try it and use it for the first time so if you can get to that that's actually a brilliant very important milestone because the sooner you can get to that the sooner you can get on the learning journey of whether the data is high quality and with data products i think data quality is primary and it's not an issue till it becomes an issue if it were to become an issue you want it to happen sooner rather than later so that's been uh, the journey we have followed, even as we prototyped and built out this flagship capability we have at SUS Global around climate related physical rest data. And getting that either as in the simplest format, be it if it is tabular data and CSV file formats, or if it is uh, spatial data, having it in GeoJSON or GeoTIFF formats, can actually just make it very easy for anyone working with that data to load up into their own workflows. So you're taking away the friction and the additional effort of standing up an API and the delivery-related engineering effort and making it directly a data-to-data value proposition. So if you can prove that out, then it's about delivery mechanisms be it dashboard or API or direct file transfer mechanisms towards getting that data over to them. And now we have enough expertise in the community towards being able to solve that problem. Oftentimes, the data is the new thing, and that's the real product. And that's what you want to prove out first.
1: When data is your real product, how do you build a moat around it and make sure nobody else can just go get that data and start supplying it? Like what can you do when you're building a analytics platform or a platform where it's like I sell data to make sure that you continue to differentiate
0: and win? That's a great question. And I feel that's still like a unsolved problem largely in data products, which is being- from the engineering and product standpoint and has been largely the realm of business models. So there's an angle you there's a dimension I'm trying to flesh out in greater detail in an upcoming blog post that I'm writing up. I'm having to share that with you and your audience in the coming weeks. But the idea, the few dimensions to definitely explore in detail are what's the freshness of the data? So if you're delivering a very static data set, then your data product has some inherent limitations so the biggest challenge so think about like a data set of u.s counties make it super simple the county boundaries don't change very often so if you you were to package that and sell it to customers they could in theory buy it share it across their teams and buy it once share it across their teams and not have to talk to you again it's not a very inherently sticky capability so I think the freshness and the temporal element is definitely worth thinking through. The second bit is access patterns. How does someone actually access your data? So if it is directly sending them the whole data set through the API or through a visual interface, then that has some limitations. But when you're dealing with global data sets like we do, inherently, no one's going to want all the global data at once they need specific regions so you're sticky because of the geographic footprint you cover and then the third dimension is the business model are you licensing the data based on certain set of parameters and how does that work in the real world across your customer base today and in the future so those are the three dimensions i would look at temporal being first which is how fresh is your data set and your data product the uh, geographic, or I would say dimensionality of your data set and how that is partitioned before it is uh, handed to customers and what the interfaces there are. And thirdly, like the business model.
1: Great, that's a really good advice for that. When you are building Cess Global too, what did you find the most challenging part about building a product like this?
0: The challenges we have faced so far are typical of creating a new product in an emergent space so the first aspect is identifying okay where does the product have traction today and that's often very clear based on the inbound and based on the stickiness of your outbound and then where are the new venues in which your data your capability can have traction in the near term and the long term And in the near term, sometimes it might be very limited, but the mid to long term, it could be emergent and reading those signals. That's more of an art, less of a science. It's more of testing early hypotheses rather than a highly quantitative, highly uh, programmed approach. So I would say having that mix of data-driven decision-making when there's very little data has been one of the challenging things as we take a new capability like this into the market, which is rapidly evolving.
1: De-risk some of those bets. You know, you've got tons of stuff going on with climate right now and policy changes and a lot of that's like out of your control. What types of things are you doing? And like, especially as a heads of product to, you know, stay ahead of that, make sure that you're not like caught by surprise. What's your What's your day, yeah. to day look like in those situations?
0: So primarily it's having... I think the best way as like a leader on the product side, uh, you could enable your team to stay on top of things is to enable your organization to think product and to think fundamentally, have product thinking be part of the DNA of the team you put together. So we are organized in a way where we have three squads that work fluidly across engineering and product at Global. We have a data squad, which is central to the new data modeling capabilities that we're building. We have a platform squad that's very central to the delivery, uh, content delivery mechanisms that we're putting in place. And then we have a product team that's looking at how do we bring this product with agility into new spaces that we're building traction in. And I would say the best advice I can give is make product thinking part of the DNA of your organization. Make everyone realize that. Over engineering is like a path to failure in early ventures. It's proving out your capability in uh, live, active, usage driven environments that actually brings your product to life for the near term and the midterm. And if there's no near term and midterm, there is no long term. So having that thinking is pretty critical. And then along the way, inspiring the growth in new markets and making that feedback cycle and learning part of how your team thinks about evolving the product in another dimension that as a leader, you can exercise.
1: So when you're talking about product thinking, it's funny because that was literally what my talk was on (laughs) a couple of hours ago. What types of qualities are you looking for in the people that you hire to see that they understand product thinking or what are you doing within your organization as a leader to help them understand what that actually means?
0: Yeah. I feel like hiring on uh, product management is a non-trivial task. I feel like to some extent, one can say that it's an established domain, but in some ways, data product management is relatively new, at least the way I like to think about it. You know, If you don't look at data product management, just product management in general, I would say there are three dimensions I care about. One is capacity building, which is, can you inspire your engineering team? and adjacent teams to actually work effectively on the most critical items to drive the business forward. So can you help recruiting? Can you help bring in the smartest and the brightest into your small team when the odds are stacked against you in the job environment and the recruiting environment? The second dimension is strategy. Can you think beyond just features into broader strategy? on how the product works in the market and how your product goes from one to many in terms of a lineup. So that's the roadmap level thinking, ecosystem level thinking. And some of the junior product managers might just be building that out, but seeing some signs of that is always very uh, exciting to me when I'm in the the recruiting mode. And then the third bit is execution, which is, can you drive the day-to-day delivery of products and features? and how well can you do that how effectively can you do that with a small team at your disposal that you inspire rather than work with authority over so those are the things i look at in product manager and then of course mission alignment is important their desire and purpose is important why are they are working in products is important so those are all good things for me to get to know better
1: yeah and for you you are actually like a pretty mission driven company right and dealing with really hard problems. What's it like to run a company that is so mission aligned and make sure that you are continuing to fight the good fight and not just get completely sidetracked by things that might be easy or super profitable? Like, How do you make sure that you're doing stuff that really aligns to your mission and how do you create that
0: mission and that camaraderie around it? We are very fortunate to be operating in a space where it is possible to be mission aligned and at the same time, be highly commercially minded. So, if you look at the next 20 to 30 years, I feel sustainable capital allocation has the do good element for sure as a dominant vector. It also has the immense potential for huge return. And we are enabling our customers, our partners on that journey. So, that's one of the things that we stand apart on, like with our mission and our our purpose so with the mission of developing data driven products that enable every business decision to be climate informed we're kind of natively at the venn diagram of financial return for our team and our investors and uh, huge benefits for our customers and then the intersection of social and net positive impact so i feel When it comes to making choices in product development, as we all know, as product managers, you're constantly making trade-offs and prioritizing. I always seek the sweet spot in that Venn diagram of these two dimensions, which is financial return for our customers and the potential for social impact and growth.
1: Have you run into any situations where you feel like those things sometimes get at odds with each other? And then how do you make sure you choose the right one? What's your thought process around... Which way do we go?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I feel we do run into those issues or some choices we have to make, I would say less issues. And sometimes I feel making a suboptimal choice today as like a small business is better than making no decision and allowing it to roll. So sometimes, you know, one of the traders we have to make is do we support a financially lucrative business opportunity that has the opportunity to have near-term Social impact in a small way? Or do we go after an opportunity to have long term social impact by supporting a nonprofit? And we kind of want to do both. But in the early days, we had to make the hard choices there in terms of what we prioritize. And we've come up with some strategies in terms of enabling our data for net positive social good efforts. We are running the first of its kind Climate Data Studio later this month. Which is bringing together many nonprofits and potential uh, sustainability partners into the room and doing a shared o- onboarding. And none of them are commercial users of our data, but they see the opportunity to use the data in interesting ways to support the underprivileged communities, support climate justice initiatives, and support avenues where can be better decision making, better knowledge sharing when they have more clean, validated data on the changing climate.
1: Cool. So you're kind of like supporting these other companies that are also supporting really good causes. And through them, you can make sure that you're actually staying in touch with the the good fight of the climate activists.
0: Right. And through that we're actually building, you know what in the venture landscape people often talk about network effects. But Mm -hmm. there's a subtle element of a data network effect, which is you want people to be able to use and understand your data. And that just takes time, being very conscious of that even in an environment which is very data savvy, with a community that is very data driven, it takes time for people to fully understand your capabilities and your capabilities are evolving. So having a group of people who are constantly in touch with your capabilities and using your data for social good just magnifies the impact of what you can actually do.
1: Yeah, that's really nice. That's great advice. For people who are out there, I think maybe trying to get into things that have a lot of impact. And I do hear from people, they're like, I wish I could do what I do around these causes that are actually going to make a difference. So I guess, what's your advice for people who are out there saying, you know, I'd rather help drive change in climate, work for the government, work on these different policies. They see the opportunities. How should they think about where to join in or how to start something that might be impactful in those areas and succeed with it?
0: Yeah, I would say, think about a team that is like learning. Like any team you join, think about a team where Agility and learning are essential to how they operate. And secondly, think about a purpose that resonates very close with your heart, because then you're willing to go the extra mile or the extra thousand miles towards making a success out of what you're trying to build. And product management in new markets with uh, new capabilities is just inherently not easy. So being able to iterate and succeed in that space requires all those the passion, the purpose and iterative learning oriented thinking and a growth mindset to really come together.
1: Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been really enlightening. It's fun for me to hear about how you take such a mission driven company and make sure that you can thrive with it. Where can people learn more about sus Global and yourself?
0: Yeah, the best place for you all to learn more about Trust is sussglobal.com. And uh, the b- best place to reach me is LinkedIn. So feel free to send me a note there. I'm always happy to connect with new folks who are inspired by product and data and interested in doing more. We're always hiring for new folks across many different roles in product and engineering. So if any of the, oh, those are interesting to you, reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. And you know it's been a delight to be sharing more of these deeper topics with you, Melissa. Thanks for having me and for all of you thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Thanks so much. For those of you listening, thank you for joining us and make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that you can hear a new episode every Wednesday. Next week, we'll have another Dear Melissa. So make sure that you submit your questions at dearmelissa.com and I'll answer them on the next episode. With that, we'll see you next time.